uh, should, should I just, are we going to listen to the piece? I forget how we do it. So are we listening to the piece or just going? Yeah, we can listen to the piece. This is Jordi Sabal's recording. Welcome to this episode of the Josiah's Podcast. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Potter Edmund. Potter, how are you doing? I'm still a bit sick. Oh, dear. Uh, and uh, because I always forget to say this, you can follow us on Twitter and uh, Facebook. Our Twitter handle is Josiah's underscore Rex, I believe. We'll have it in the links below. And you can also send us emails and questions at Editors at thejosias.com. Potter, why don't you tell us a little bit about that piece of music and why you chose it for this uh, episode, which is on Prudence. Yeah, well, we kind of chose this one together. This is from Johann Sebastian Bach's Ein Musikalisches Opfer, which is a, a work that he wrote for King Frederick, uh, the so-called Great of Prussia. A musical um. offering. <laughs> so Indeed. Uh, do you want to just tell the story real quick? And then I had a, a couple questions about how it ties into Prudence. So the story is that Bach's son, uh, Karl Philipp Emanuel Bach, was uh, a musician at the court of, of King Frederick of Prussia in Potsdam. And the king um, asked him to invite his father, the so-called old Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, to uh, come to court. And so eventually... <laughs> Old Bach went to court, and the king uh, gave him. The king was also a composer; he was a, a flautist, and he gave Bach a theme and asked him to write a three-part fugue on it, which he well to improvise a three-part fugue, which he did immediately, and then he asked him to do a six-part fugue. The theme was a very difficult one, and uh, Bach said he would need to he would need to uh, to do that in writing. So when he got back home, he he wrote a six-part fugue and uh, a whole bunch of canons on this theme, which he then had printed and sent to the king. So uh, the the further about the story is that uh, uh, King Frederick of Prussia was, uh, well, I don't need to give his biography. Everyone will know who he is. But he was a big fan of the gallant style, the new melodic style that rubbished as old-fashioned 
all this counterpoint and fugues and canons, and particularly the church music, which relied so heavily on those themes. He also uh, had Bach play some of his new forte pianos, which were the new, the, the, you know, the, the earliest pianos. Uh, that went with the style of music. And Bach famously did not like forte pianos. He liked harpsichords. So uh, I guess my question is, oh, uh, one, one other point before I ask the question. Uh, what Bach sent him, as we heard, is highly technical, mournful almost piece of music. And it it's not really uh, uh, easy melodic listening it's very beautiful very haunting but not exactly what you would send if you were trying to curry favor with the king of prussia was this prudent on Bach's part what's Bach up to here it seems like it's highly imprudent yeah so i mean you sent me uh, an essay about how the musical offering is esoterically it's a critique of frederick the great and everything it stands he stands for of the enlightenment and all the rest of it Bach is kind of judging him and saying, look, you need to uh, return to the truth and submit to the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. Um, and in a certain sense of the word prudent, we would say that's imprudent. That's right. because the, the name prudence in modern parlance has come to mean kind of cautious and foresightful about one's own self-interest. Uh, but this is not what prudence means what the classical meaning of prudence is, which is what we want to talk about in this episode. Yes, the classical meaning of prudence is sort of the, the uh, turning point. And I also thought about prudence as we were discussing whether to use this or a much more lively piece. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hmm, is it so prudent of us to, to lead with such a slow, uh, technical, almost mathematical piece of music? But it's, it's one of my favorites. And the other, the other amusing thing about this piece that I forgot to mention uh, Frederick of Prussia was a flautist, which only goes to prove my thesis that the flute is the worst of all instruments. Uh, <laughs> but the piece that Bach sent back was not only not in a style that Frederick liked, but I've also, I've heard, I've read that the flute part is extremely difficult, too difficult, in fact, for Frederick. <laughs> so it was kind of a, uh, a thumbing the nose at Frederick in more ways than one. Uh, at least that's the rumor. So, turning, well done, Bach. <laughs> <laughs> turning to uh, turning to the subject at hand, prudence. Maybe I can start with sort of an objection to prudence as uh, queen of the virtues. So there's there's yeah. two objections I have. The first one is that prudence seems to be prudence as thomas teaches us is to uh it, it stands in a, a relation you, you can say science uh, that is the deductive art where you actually get to conclusions through syllogisms is to mm -hmm. principles as right action is to ends in other words just as a science will make syllogisms from principles so prudence which is right action which is the the virtue of right action uh makes uh, sorts of syllogisms starting from the ends. And Thomas says quite explicitly in uh, uh, question 57 of the Prima Secunda, I think, that the ends are supplied by the moral virtues. So in other words, if you don't have moral virtues of your appetites, of how you relate to others, you're not going to have the right ends. So you're not going to aim at the right thing. And as we know, ends are greater than means. So it seems like moral virtues, meaning the virtues other than prudence, uh, which it itself is a moral virtue, but the other moral virtues are greater than prudence. Yeah, that's that's uh, 47, question 47. Oh, is it 47? In the oh, sorry. Prima Secunde of, of uh, the Summa Theologiae. So, I mean, this goes back in a way to our discussion a few episodes ago when we were talking about virtue in general. Right. So prudence is considered uh, in terms of the faculty that it perfects, it's an intellectual virtue. But considered in virtue of uh, what it's for, it's a moral virtue. So there is a way in which the other moral virtues are more clearly moral. The moral has to do with 
desire for the good, appetite for the good. And the other moral virtues, fortitude, which perfects the irascible appetite, um, temperance, which uh, perfects the concupiscible appetite, and justice, which perfects the will, they have directly to do with the part of the soul, as Aristotle puts it there in the ethics, the part of the soul that is with reason, that is the part of the soul that submits to reason, namely appetite, the desire for what is good. So in a way, the other moral virtues are more moral, but prudence is more virtue. It's more, uh, it's more a perfection of man than uh, the other faculty, than the other cardinal virtues, because the highest faculty of man is not uh, an appetitive faculty, a desire. The highest faculty of man is a, a knowing faculty, namely reason. I think this also sort of relates to the reason that Thomas gives. I think it's actually in the next article of uh, the article on distinguishing uh, the question is about uh, the whether prudence is distinguished is a virtue distinct from art. And he's talking about the uh, intellectual virtues here. There's a way in which prudence, as you said, does can be considered uh, to also supply the end in a certain sense, since it knows it uh, in syndaresis, which is the uh, principle that knows the ends of action. But the reason the moral virtues are what uh, supply the end in another sense, it seems to me at least, I wonder about this, is because the moral virtues are what get you from just being continent or incontinent to actually being virtuous. The moral virtues, if you don't train your passions, it's no good if you're if you're a, a you know drug addict, you might know heroin is bad for me. I should stop doing it. But if you, your passions are constantly overpowering virtue, then you won't have the end in fact when you go to act. You only have it intellectually. So in other words, the moral virtues are what allow the end to be something more than just known uh, intellectually, but to be actually an end for your will itself. Right. So there's a kind of circularity here, but it's not a vicious circularity. It's yeah. a, a virtuous circularity in this way. Prudence, in a way, depends on the the other moral virtues. It depends on being conformed to a right appetite, an appetite that's actually... Um, aimed at what's really good. But the other moral virtues also depend on prudence because right. to be really virtuous, they have to be conformed to right reason. And that's what prudence does. It, so how do I conform my appetite for wine, say, to right reason? How do I get the virtue of temperance? Well, I get it through habituation. But habituation to what? Habituation to uh, what is prudently judged to be the right amount of wine for me. So prudence gives the measure of what uh, temperance is going to desire. Right. But it's habituation which will then uh, actually make me temperate, actually make me desire what is prudent. Right, right. And that's why uh, uh, Thomas will say ultimately that it's distinct from, or why is Socrates wrong about virtue? Socrates famously proposes at a couple different places that virtue is knowledge. And Thomas rejects it rightly for that reason. Uh, so the next the next challenge here is, what about justice? Isn't justice the greatest of the virtues? Aristotle says in Book 5 of the Nicomachean Ethics that justice is, in a sense, all virtue directed outwardly, and that it is the greatest of virtues. And it does seem like justice since it involves uh, uh, the common good so directly, and since it is our relationship with the outside world, would be the greatest of virtues. Yeah, there are two. I mean, there are two ways of arguing for justice as the the greatest virtue. That's that one that you give is the Aristotelian way, um, and there's a Christian extension of that where you say justice is to give to each his due. That includes giving. God his due, which includes obeying the, the, the natural law which God wrote into our hearts. So every act of virtue will be an act of justice towards God. 
And in that way, justice will include all virtue. Or there's also a Platonic way of looking at it, where Plato sees justice as being the right uh, proportion between all the other virtues in the soul. Right. Or in the city. Um, but A sort of internal uh, justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's internal justice. Whereas St. Thomas will say that justice is the perfection of the will, that is of rational appetite. Right. Um, so it is the, per, uh, the perfection of a particular faculty in the soul, not of not just the, the harmony of all the faculties. But in any case, justice will still be um, dependent on prudence. Right. Justice will be dependent on knowing uh, the truth about the reality that I'm in, the circumstances that I'm in, the truth about what uh, will be owed to God and to my neighbor. Um, that is That is going to be known by prudence and in the case of the common good specifically regnative prudence that is the prudence of right. the ruler right. who has to know um, what is to be done in order to achieve the common good and this is because uh, maybe this this gets to the answer to both these sort of preliminary objections that I, I wanted to discuss really quickly is the science or art of uh, ethics and of politics are practical arts and what that means is they're not just about knowing what to do. They're about being able to do it. They're about right action. And the virtue of right action ultimately is going to be vir uh, prudence. And this is why it is the queen of all the virtues, even though there's a sense in which it depends on the moral virtues. And even though there's another sense in which you can call justice the greatest of virtues, ultimately, and most fundamentally, it'll be prudence because prudence gets to what it is to be a practical art or a practical science. Uh, this is why prudence is often translated as wisdom. Right. Um, often right. in translations of Aristotle, you'll translate um, phronesis, which is his word for prudence, with wisdom, and specifically practical wisdom, because wisdom without qualification is speculative wisdom. It's the perfection of reason seeing uh, the before and after um, in all things, that is seeing the, the cause of everything, the, the first efficient cause and last final cause of all things, God. The speculative knowledge of, knowledge of God is, is wisdom without qualification. But practical wisdom is reason seeing the before and after in human activity, that is seeing um, what it is I have to do in order to achieve right. Uh, my end as a human being, or our end as human beings in the case of regnative prudence. Right. And we're going to see uh, later, when we, when we really dive into to prudence, that it is intimately connected with all the virtues, and, and maybe particularly with justice. Uh, because the, the scriptures refer to, uh, as you say, prudence as wisdom. There's another interesting I thing to, they do. Uh, sorry, I want to I want to go back to to one uh, other thing that yeah. you said, as it were, in passing, because I think that opens up a, a an important point that will help listeners uh, understand what what the heck we're talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about prudence. Um, you, you talked there about the art of politics, and politics is considered in one way it's an art, right? Um, but considered in another way, it's uh, it's not art. And so Aristotle distinguishes, is, Aristotle distinguishes between prudence and art. It's a prudence. It's regnative prudence. Right. One, one meaning of politics is simply regnative prudence. And regnative prudence is not an art. It's a virtue. And the difference um, has to do with this. Art uh, is ordered to an end that is distinct from the artist. Right. So if I'm making a table... I can make a good table. I mean, if I were a good carpenter, say carpentry would be a menial art. I would be the artist. We, nowadays, we use art almost exclusively for the fine arts. But Aristotle uses techne, the Greek word for art, to mean also menial arts, um, servile arts. So say I'm a carpenter. I'm making a table, right? If I'm a good carpenter, that means I know what to do in order to produce this effect that's exterior to me. And so I can be a good carpenter, but an evil man, right? I can produce good tables, but otherwise be um, unjust and uh, 
intemperate and imprudent and uh, all the rest look of it. At, look at most artists through history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at Picasso. Or, well, maybe a bad example. But <laughs> look at Raphael. Well, Raphael in a sense, he, he, uh, in a sense that's, not, a good, that's a good point, though, because Aristotle will also say an artist who does something bad on purpose is better than an artist who does it bad because he's just a bad artist. So, right. so the, the, Schoenberg, the uh, Arnold Schoenberg was supposed to be one of the greatest counterpoint uh, composers of the 20th century, but his music is horrible, awful, uh, bad. <laughs> yeah. He understood how to make bad music because yeah. he understood uh, the art of music. Yeah. And this, I mean, this ties back to what we were talking about with McIntyre and the, the, the character of the manager in modern society. Um, modern society, modern uh, culture, to use McIntyre's term, tends to view uh, social organization in terms of art rather than in terms of prudence. Right. The manager is an artist. He's producing some definite effect. Um, and he, I mean, McIntyre will argue that he's a fake artist because, in fact, he, he isn't really able to produce his effects. But even if he were, even if he were effective as a manager, uh, still there'd be something disordered about it because um, what we're dealing with in, uh, in politics, especially if you were talking about political administration here, is the ordering of human life. So in order to rightly order it, you need to understand what needs to be done in order to bring people closer to their goal. And this is why in the classical tradition, you have this strong insistence that a good politician has to be a good man, simply speaking. He has to have prudence and all the moral virtues. Whereas to be a good manager is to be a technician, an artist. He just needs to understand how to produce some effect outside of himself. It's not uh, the... I mean, we talk in a way about politics as the art of guiding souls, but uh, it's not really an art because the effect is not outside the ruler. The ruler is not uh, uh, Pacha to to certain um, followers of uh, Stuart King's. The <laughs> the sovereign and the subject are not uh, entirely distinguishable because the common good is the is common to the subject and the sovereign. Well, since, in other words, if the sovereign England... is not prudent. He won't be able to lead the subjects to the common good. So in politics right. one three, I wanted to, to circle back to this point and then we'll maybe get a little further into McIntyre. Uh, Aristotle says two things that are really uh, beautiful and sort of stuck with me. Uh, he says that prudence, and this is to go back to the point of the relation between prudence and the moral virtues. He says that the soul rules the body like a despot. Mm -hmm. But then he says that uh, prudence rules the appetites with a political rule. And what he means there, I take it, is that uh, when the soul commands the body, the body just does things. I mean, you know, within limits, but uh, the body doesn't... Uh, argue back. Whereas we, we've all had the experience, St. Augustine, you know, wrote beautifully about it, of trying to make yourself do things and you find yourself resisting yourself. You're at war with yourself. So in other words, you have to get the moral virtues on your side before prudence can really be able to rule. A political rule, you can't rule your subjects if they're rebelling. You'll, you, you'll cease to have rule. As as you as you just pointed out, exactly yeah. So we talked about uh, art versus prudence. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Isn't isn't it the case? Why isn't prudence simply a matter of art? Because it seems like, or rather, why isn't it just calculative? It seems like the prudent man ought to be able to do. If it's just about means. He ought to just be able to find the means for whatever end, supply and end. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but isn't isn't prudence just, why does it presuppose the rectitude of the appetite? Shouldn't it just be uh, like logic is? Logic is good reasoning. You have bad ends, you have, uh, you have bad principles, 
you'll come to false conclusions, but you can still have good syllogisms. If prudence is about right action, it's about the syllogism, as it were, in the practical sphere, well, couldn't we say that there's prudence even when you have bad first principles? Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this, this goes back to the determination of what the end of human life is. So prudence is not concerned with some particular good, like an art is. Artists say the art of table making is concerned with particular with some particular good, namely the production of a table or the the art of war is concerned with one particular good, namely achieving victory over your enemies. Um, but prudence is concerned with achieving the good as a human being. And as Aristotle shows at the beginning of the ethics, the good of the human being is to do the activity of a human being um, well. And the activity of the human being is the act of reason and the act that participates in reason, namely the act of the appetite. So uh, everything has to come together in order to be happy, in order to do the, the action, to live a human life well, to do human activity well. So if I'm, uh, if I'm, if I'm thinking of prudence the way Frederick the Great was said to be prudent, um, and this is sort of the Enlightenment, idea of prudence, uh, which you get the most um, complete account of maybe in Kant, who uh, contrasts prudence with morality. You know, prudence is sort of this calculate, calculation of ends with uh, respect to self-interest. Um, I'm not actually going to be happy. I'm not actually going to be living a truly human life. If I'm, say, say I'm a miser and I'm prudent in the modern sense, prudent in uh, inverted commas in that I organize uh, all my activity in order to get the, the maximum amount of money. But this is not practical wisdom. This is not making my life a truly human life, a truly fulfilled life. That only happens when I see the order of my actions towards the true end, the order of my actions towards, uh, that is, when I can conform my actions to right reason. Um, and that will, and it's it's going to be different uh, from the science of ethics. Say, in the science of ethics, I can see in a general way um, what actions are conducive to the human end, what are what actions in general are in accordance with right reason. In the science of ethics, say, I can uh, see the the first principles of the natural law and draw certain conclusions from them, certain secondary precepts of the natural law. Um, that that's all uh, nice as far as it goes, but no amount of studying ethics will make me prudent because prudent will, prudence measures the particular actions that I have to make here and now, which depends not only on general principles, but also on my particular circumstances, where I am, what my particular duties are, who I'm with, and so on. All that will come into conforming my action to right reason. So I remember... I was when I was studying uh, a course on more or less on on uh, jurisprudence uh, and and law in uh, legal philosophy. Uh, I read something that really struck me because it was an old idea put into new form. Uh, it was about the limitation of rules, and the conclusion was essentially that you could never have a rule that was complete for all circumstances. In other words, you could never express one discursively and you know, adding exceptions and provisos, et cetera, that would actually capture all circumstances of human life. And it struck me that this is sort of the problem with the technocratic, bureaucratic uh, regime that is often proposed as a replacement for prudence. There's an idea that mm. We don't need to be prudent anymore if we can just get, you know, computers and machines to spit out answers for us. Well, it's great. We've solved it. We don't have to be prudent. It's sort of Descartes' idea that we wouldn't have to have wisdom if we just had the right procedure. We could manipulate science in such a way that you don't have to have wisdom about mathematical uh, reality. You don't have to have wisdom about physics. You just put it into his little algebra his machine, essentially, and you come out with an answer. And it strikes me that the problem with this is that, uh, and it's something McIntyre talks well about, is that 
Life is more contingent. Life is more particular. Life is more unknowable. So maybe you could say a little bit about the way in which prudence uh, achieves the truth, and we can sort of transition into talking about prudence and truth, but it doesn't achieve it the way a science achieves truth. It doesn't achieve it with certitude. Exactly. And this goes back to what we were saying before, that prudence is, is both an intellectual and a moral virtue. So the science of ethics is only an intellectual virtue. Um, I can know all about ethics. I can, you know, elaborate. Um, <laughs> I'm speaking from experience here. <laughs> I can, you know, give yeah. beautiful speeches, as Mino would say, on, on the natural law and <laughs> primary and secondary precepts, right? Um, but to be prudent, to um, actually live in accordance with reason, implies a certain bridge between reason and appetite, which is a perfection uh, of reason with regard to appetite. And that's what the virtue of prudence really is. It's that bridge. And so that w w basically, the even though you don't know them with mathematical certainty, you, one can know the general precepts of natural law with certainty. And in fact, the first precept of practical action, uh, uh, do good, avoid evil, everyone has to agree with. You can't disagree with it. You can't fail to know that. But then as you get into the particulars, because singulars are contingent, because singulars are uh, uh, involve future, so they don't even exist yet because there's so much potential involved, uh, uh, prudence, even the most prudent man, the perfectly prudent man, humanly speaking, he's not going to achieve certainty in his action. He's only going to achieve a certain, uh, he's only going to get to a certain degree. And that's, I think, what the, the, the famous proverb, one of the things it's getting at, uh, the thoughts of man are miserable, our, our devices are uncertain, or, or however you want to translate it. Uh, although that may also be talking about the fact that we fail even to have what prudence is humanly attainable. Yeah, there's a brilliant little uh, essay of Charles de Koenig on this, um, <clears throat> which is called General Standards in Particular Situations in Relation to the Natural Law. Um, and <laughs> he gives an example there, actually taken from, <clears throat> I think from Gabriel Marcel. Uh, there was a, it's a story of a, during, well, right at the end of, of World War II when Germany is collapsing, uh, there, um, a man and his wife who who have been working uh, to resist the Nazi oppression and so on. They flee from the area that's still under the rule of the National Socialists to an area that's already occupied by the Allies. Mm -hmm. Then Marcel says that the the whoever the governor is of that particular area or the the officer in charge or whatever. He cares little about what this man and his wife are or think. All he cares about is that they have Romanian passports. And Romania is still at war on the Axis side. Therefore, they're enemies. Therefore, they need to be put in prisoner of war camp. And um, obviously, his conclusion is false. Uh, and the reason is that he's, he's just trying to um, reason deductively from the rule to get to what is the right action in this case. But in order to actually do the right thing in this case, he needs to care what these people are and think. That, he, that is, he needs to care about the particular circumstance and to have the uh, not only abstract knowledge or not only pure knowledge of, of the circumstance, but he also has to be in the right moral relation to, towards these people. That is, he has, his act, appetite has to be rectified. He has to say, oh, you know, these are people who are striving against... Right. Uh, national socialism, and we need to help them. <laughs> so maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, so following uh, Pieper's book on the cardinal virtues, maybe we can talk a little bit about the way in which prudence is uh, truth. In the Bible, you pointed out earlier that prudence is called wisdom, uh, and there's also the, the, the Bible will also call justice truth. For instance, when they say mercy and truth shall kiss. Uh, but there's a way in which uh, 
justice and prudence are very closely interlinked, and there's a way in which prudence is itself the truth, which would make sense of it being uh, part of the intellectual, in a sense, uh, part of the intellectual virtues. So maybe we can go through the parts of virtue and sort of think about them following Pieper. The parts of prudence, that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Pieper makes a a very profound point, I think, in that uh, little book on the cardinal virtues, namely that the the hierarchy of the virtues um, it depends on the order of the transcendentals. That is, mm-hmm. it's not just sort of a, a a beauty contest, but it's it really has to do with the very structure of um, reality. So. Um, if you look at the transcendentals, just as being is uh, before truth, and so far as truth adds some notion to being, they're convertible, but truth adds something to being. So truth is also before the good, because again, the for, good. For the folks at adds, home, just say quickly what you mean by transcendental. So the transcendentals are um, things that you can say about reality that are not in that are not in one category of reality that is that's why they're called transcendental because they they transcend the different categories so the categories are things like substance that's like a thing the what is that would be one category and quality like like color and um form and stuff like that that would be uh, how something is, or quantity, how much something is. Those are different categories uh, of, of, in logic, you call them categories of predication. That is, they're different ways of saying something about something. And the transcendentals are, some, are something that you can say about different categories of being. So if you say, let's take being. This is the, the kind of the, the, uh, the first of the transcendentals, being, you say it about substance primarily, that is you say, substance is what is, this is a man, he's, he's a being. Right. Um, but you can also say it about the accidents of man. There's a, a sense in which the whiteness of the man is. It's, it has some kind of being. It's a being that's in the substance, but nevertheless it's being. So being is something that you find in more than one category, and that's why it's called transcendental. And there are other transcendentals, and the, the, the curious thing about these transcendentals is that in a way they're distinct, and in a way they're the right. same. Right. So you can say good. Good is another example. That we've talked about can, uh Right. Have we? I think I so. On, the, on one of them we talked about how good and being are convertible, but good is uh, uh, primarily refers to the perfection of being, whereas being fundamentally just refers to the act so you know yes i remember now we talked about that in terms of which is why in a way every being is good because every being is is some uh perfection which is always a an imitation of its cause which is god god is the cause of all beings so all beings have some perfection which is some uh likeness to their cause and so every being is good but the way in which you say being and good are different, and this is, I think, what we talked about, what right. you're referring to before, namely that when you say being without any qualification, when you just say um, Joel is, then you're referring, first of all, to his substance. That is, he has substantial being. And then if you say Joel is then some accident, then you're sort of qualifying being. So being, simply speaking, is substantial being, but being sort of in a qualified sense is accidental being joel is white that would white is an accident of joel that's i mean this is all getting very abstract but the the point is with with good it would be the opposite and the other if you, the other trends if i say joel is good right. i mean primarily that he has some accident namely virtue um and only in kind of an extended or, or secondary sense would i say joel is good simply in virtue of the fact that he exists if you, if Joel were a, vers- were a vicious man, which is not the case, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, this Hopefully. is so. Th- so the other transcendental that we should mention, and and we got a little deeper into this than I thought, although it's really necessary in a way to uh, 
to know these things. the other one is is unity. One is another transcendental because yes. the accidents can be one, but substance is probably primarily one. And uh, so Pieper goes through them to show why, uh, a deep truth about prudence that, that comes from a metaphysical necessity, as it were, not just from... So why don't you right. talk through right. that? So the deep, the deep truth uh, that he gets from this is that just as as being um, has a, a kind of priority over truth and and truth has a certain priority over goodness, so um, prudence will have a priority over the the other moral virtues, which are more immediately the perfection of the uh, of the desiring part of the soul. Because the desires, our desires will then be good will then be really uh, desiring our true perfection when they're conformed to the reality of the world, to the way the world really is. Right. So it depends on our knowledge of the reality of being, that is, it depends on our attaining to the truth uh, in practical matters, which is what prudence does, that makes us uh, able to desire rightly. Right, right. So it ends up being that it's because of the priority of being that prudence has such priority. It's because uh, it's because our reality. It's because we are not the measure of reality. Our minds as do not, and this is one of the other great Enlightenment errors. I think one that we actually haven't talked about that much. For the ancients. They looked out at the world, and the world was the fundamental thing. The moderns start more and more thinking that their minds are the fundamental thing. And you can see a sort of diabolical pride in this shift. And the reason prudence is so central for the ancients is because it is, in a sense, truth. It is the truth of how you should act. Exactly. And here, when you say the ancients, you mean the... The perennial philosophers, that is, right. you're, you're talking about the line of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Right. Because you have, of course, also at the time of, of Socrates, you have the sophists. You have people like Protagoras who have a kind of proto-modern position, or if you want to call it that, obviously. I mean, in, in the Republic, who's kind of Nietzschean in his, uh, you know, the will is what's primary. <laughs> right. And with Protagoras says, you know, man is the measure of all things which would be right. the opposite here. And with the Simicus, it, it becomes clear that that would mean that the will is the measure of all things. So first, I want what I happen to want, and then what's prudent follows from that. Um, whereas for Socrates, and this is the truth of the matter, it's the opposite. You yeah. first have to understand uh, reality, and then you're able to desire and to act in accordance with that reality. And this is one of the fundamental dis- differences. And you're right, I-, I meant the perennial philosophers, because obviously there's also, there's many uh, good philosophers after the Enlightenment, they just, no one pays any attention to them. I think you once <laughs> wrote that uh, Cardinal Cajetan, for all for all the world paid attention, he might as well have gone fishing. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in fact, this is such a huge, vital distinction. And Protagoras' error is about the intellect's relation to the world. And Thrasymachus is about the will's intel- uh, relation to the intellect. So there's sort of two errors that, that the moderns end up making uh, various ones falling on one side or the other. The first being that, look, our intellect uh, is a mirror of reality. It's not the other way around. And the second is that our will desires what's presented to it by our intellect. Uh, our, 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 the intellect is prior to the will. Although in certain ways, uh, uh, secundum quid, you can talk about the priority of the will over the intellect. Thomas will do it at various points. Um, yeah. So there's two things I'd like to do before we stop, and maybe we can do them. One is there's different ways in which you can divide prudence, and Thomas will talk about it in the secundae. Sorry, I, before we move to that, can I just say one more thing yes, about absolutely. Uh, Pieper and truth and 
jurisprudence, because I think this is really illuminating also to help understand what we've been saying. Mm-hmm. There are two there are two senses in which um, Pieper says prudence is in a way truth or is primarily concerned with truth. The first is that prudence is concerned with the truth of the the world exterior to myself. If I'm prudent, I will be able to see the way things see things the way they are, remember them the way they really happened, and not the way I would have liked them to happen. You know, and uh, the, to the extent that prudence is is clouded, also to the extent that it's clouded by the lack of the other moral virtues. I will be distorting reality. I'll remember right. things wrong, you know, the way right. I want them to right. be, and I'll I'll find excuses, you know, for doing what's not really in accordance with the truth of the reality external to me. And that's the point so I really wanted to get to. Uh, and so, then, but one the, yeah. but one more way in which truth, I mean, prudence is, can be said to be truth, is that prudence also makes my actions true, right. in this sense that I, as a human being, am true that is i conform as an external sign of my creator i conform to the intention of the creator in creating me so if i think of myself as a word in a way expressing something about god prudence is what enables that word to be true so that god through me can say you know what he wants to say so the truth right so this is one of the two things i want to talk about One thing is Thomas divides prudence in a couple of different ways according to Mm -hmm. the different ways of part and whole. And I'm a little worried that if we try to talk about this, we'll end up talking about, uh, you know, the the metaphysics chapters on part and whole. And we uh, we won't get anywhere (laughs) knowing us. Uh, But the second thing is the thing that Pieper talks about which is the ways in which, and I found this, uh, first of all, really illuminating, and second of all, really, uh, I sort of uh, thought about my own actions and and felt very (laughs) small (laughs) and inadequate. The ways in which prudence fails. He says, Thomas, following Thomas, he says there's two ways that prudence fails. One way is because of intemperance or unchastity, as he puts it. And the other way where prudence is a sort of prudence, a, a, a simulacrum of prudence, is because of covetousness. So maybe we can focus on that uh, and then and then end briefly just by mentioning the various parts of prudence. So say say something about uh, about chastity. Why is chastity particularly um, or unchastity particularly contrary to prudence? So it's contrary. It's it's one of the ways. You can sort of group prudence into two uh, two different uh, sections uh, in terms of how it fails. So the first is a, a an active failure. This is how unchastity makes prudence fail. It's sort of a non-fulfillment of prudence. Unchastity causes... Uh, or, or intemperance, really. So these are the uh, virtues of the passions. Uh, will cause thoughtlessness. So this is the, the perfection of the concupiscible appetite, right. Right. which the cardinal virtue here would be intemperance, but one of the principal uh, virtues under that would be, um, un, I mean, the cardinal virtue would be temperance. One of the principal virtues <laughs> under that would be chastity. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, Catholic priest claims that intemperance <laughs> is a cardinal virtue. No, uh, the uh, and the reason for that is, I mean, this is why purity is so important, is because our sexual appetites are so incredibly strong that uh, for most people, it's much harder to control them than than the other appetites of of the passions but yeah temperance is the virtue but the most important part particularly here is going to be chastity purity uh and it's going to be because there's an omission in prudence because you're going to be surrendering yourself you're going to be surrendering yourself to your passions and it's going to cause prudence to fail in memory or to fail in being able to decide and you can see why pretty clearly because 
if you are, if you know, so you're not vicious, you know, you should, you should uh, not uh, uh, eat the chocolate cake, but you're, you don't have control of your passions, you're not going to be able to decide between the two. Or it's going to play tricks with your memory because your passions are going to create a clouded or a, 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 a false memory. So prudence isn't going to be working from the right image to get to the right end. The, uh, the second thing, though, that he talks about is the false prudence, which is covetousness. Sure. So Pieper says, the meaning of the virtue of prudence, however, is primarily this, that not only the end of human action, but also the means for its realization should be in keeping with the truth of real things. This in turn necessitates that the egocentric interests of man be silenced in order that he may perceive the truth of real things and that so that reality itself may guide him to the proper means for realizing his goal. On the other hand, the meaning or rather the folly of cunning consists in this, that the loquacious and therefore unhearing bias of the tactician, only he who is silent can hear, obstructs the path of realization, blocks it off from the truth of real things. Nor should a good end be pursued by means that are false and counterfeit, but by such as are true, says Thomas. Here there comes to light the affinity of prudence and of the clear-eyed virtue of magnanimity. Insidiousness, guile, craft, and concupiscence are the refuge of small-minded and small-souled persons. Of magnanimity, however, Thomas declares that it prefers in all things to act openly. Right. And it's this it's this idea that uh, it ties it very clearly to truth again, because uh, St. Paul, for instance, contrasts at several places cunning, astutia. Uh, he contrasts cunning with making the truth publicly known at uh, Corinthians 4.2, for instance. Uh, and... This false prudence will look very prudential from a this-worldly perspective. You'll think, oh, this is... So this ties back into Frederick II. From a this-worldly perspective, Bach should have written... And Bach was more than capable of writing a nice gallant piece with a nice easy flute line that was showy yeah. and uh, kind of superficial. And he could have, you know, done something great. Uh, in terms of getting patronage or, or having the favor of the most powerful ruler in Germany. But instead, in a very subtle way, but nonetheless, uh, this is what he did. Instead, he made a theological point that this, uh, this false and uh, uh, unchaste man... <laughs> should return to the to the Ten Commandments. And this is something, I mean, one almost could say uh, this virtue of prudence, this sort of prudence, not everybody has regnative prudence. Some people only have, right. I mean, most people, all you need to be good is to have enough prudence to, to, to listen to counsel, more or less, uh, right. and, to, and to be able to recognize counsel. But to rule, you need regnative prudence. And this sort of real regnative prudence isn't going to look like the Machiavellian version of prudence. <laughs> it's going right. to be much more open. It's going to seem at times simple almost. And this sort of prudence is something, uh, uh, to speak a little bit bluntly, I think we need more of in the church at this time. People willing to say the truth, come what may. Right. And, and also you see it, I mean, you know, again, prudence is so tied to the other virtues. If you don't have justice in your soul, if you don't have, in other words, if you're greedy and climbing and avaricious, if you don't have temperance in your soul, if you're full of immoderate lusts and passions, you're not going to be able to be prudent. Right. Any closing thoughts for us, Potter? Well, we've been talking about prudence mostly as a natural virtue. Right. But there's also, in, in the life of grace, 
um, God gives us not only the theological virtues in the, in the proper sense, faith, hope, and charity, but he also gives us infused moral virtues, including an infused prudence that um, is able to judge rightly about what leads to the supernatural end um, and that sees clearly, that doesn't brush over kind of the evil of things that are opposed to the supernatural good, but that sees clearly how bad they are and then commands courage, as it were, to strive against them. That's another thing we need in the church today to take care. Yes, indeed. Um, and, you know, the infused virtues are great uh, uh, because the natural virtues are so hard to get, in a sense. I mean, not that the infused virtue, virtues are easy to get, but uh, Christ got them for us, as it were. <laughs> it's no merit. We don't have to merit them, <laughs> which is the great part, because natural virtue... Uh, St. Augustine teaches, and, and Thomas really calls them, is, is impossible because of the fall. We can't, we can't achieve it. We can only achieve it uh, secundum quid, because uh, Thomas talks about how the virtues are unified, and we see it here, why they're unified. And this is somewhere McIntyre like, rejects Thomas and after virtue here. Uh, the virtues are unified because of... Uh, to be virtue simply, you need prudence and you're going to need the other moral virtues. Uh, whereas uh, you can only have them, you can have them in a certain sense, you can be courageous without prudence or without temperance, etc. I think on that right. note, you, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I mean, McIntyre, I think, slightly misunderstands the point when that he thinks he's rejecting. Thomas isn't isn't going so he McIntyre brings up the example of a, a Nazi officer who is very courageous right and he would say well this it wouldn't make any sense to say he doesn't have courage if you want to to uh, you know to help him then you, you have to begin with what's true about what he has and, and one thing that he really does have is is courage but the the point that St. Thomas is making there is that the courage that uh, a national socialist uh, ideologue has is not fully a virtue because virtue is what makes you good as a human being. So there is a kind of uh, subjection of appetite to reason in his courage. He is able to guide his irascible appetite and not be overcome by fear and so on. So there is a certain likeness to, to courage there, but it's not fully virtue because it's not uh, really helping him attain his end. Right. So like uh, Charles the the Twelfth of Sweden was, uh, I think it was Charles the Twelfth, was very uh, frugal in his personal life. And uh, but he didn't have true virtue. So he had a, a, a secundum quid virtue, but not true virtue. And you see, I think also that prudence is the crown because uh, you, to, you can't really have a secundum quid prudence what you end up having is cunning or one of these one of these vices that only looks like prudence. Uh, whereas you can come much closer to having like temperance, like, you know, you avoid wine and stuff like that. Well, that's, you, you're, you're pretty close, even if you are devoted to destroying the church. Or as uh, uh, Henry Sienkiewicz said, uh, had one of his soldiers say, oh, what's uh, in, uh, on, in fire and step, I believe he said, What's that building over there? They said, oh, that's where the Swedes meet every Sunday to blaspheme God and his mother. <laughs> <laughs> on, that, uh, on that ecumenical note, <laughs> I think we're out of time this week. This was a really delightful conversation for me. I really learned a lot uh, in sort of preparing for this and May the Lord grant us all prudence. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Potter. God bless you, Joe.